Well, good morning. How are we doing? We're all right, half asleep. No, we're doing well. Uh, wasn't it good to worship this morning and just to have a real sense of God's, God's presence amongst us? I don't want to lose that. We had loads of notices in between. Let's not, let's not lose sight of the fact that God's been with us already and we, he's already met with us. And we want to, to get stuck in to what God's going to say to us through the Word and then respond appropriately to what God's going to bring to us. So if you've got your Bibles, I'd love you to turn to Acts chapter 18. It's on page 1,114. It's actually our, our 19th part in this series, and we are still got a kind of a, a good chunk to go. It's a long old series, but it's, a, it's an amazing book which details um, that the first 30 years of church history is that the gospel was first preached for the first time in Jerusalem, and then Judea, and then Samaria, and then ultimately to the ends of the earth. And whilst not a, a prescription of what will happen, uh, here in Paul and Bournemouth. It is a description of what can happen when faithful servants like us come together and love Jesus and love each other and are passionate about preaching the gospel. And if we can uh, just pop the map up, we can just kind of have a look where Paul's gone already. He started down there in Jerusalem, right down the bottom. He's traveled up through Syria, across into Turkey. And it, we left off Paul in Athens there in Greece last week. And this morning he's going to travel down into Corinth and begin his ministry to the Corinthian church. It says this in verse 1. It says, after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he'd he'd been in Athens, which was very much the, the center of Greek learning. It was a place where Paul would have felt at home. He was a, a learned man. He was an intelligent man, and Athens was the place where intelligent people went. It would have very much have been like Oxford nowadays. He'd have he'd have felt at home there. But he didn't, he didn't rest on his laurels. He didn't stay where he was comfortable. He made the, the short uh, kind of 50 or so mile journey. It had been a, a couple of days walk across to Corinth, and he would have arrived in Corinth at some, some point around March AD 50, 50 years after Jesus was born. And he had stayed there for about a year and a half. Now, Corinth was a big city. In fact, it was probably the biggest city in all of Greece. It had had some 90,000 inhabitants. And it would have, it sat on this isthmus, which was a, a narrow strip of land which connected the Peloponnese Peninsula to the rest of Greek mainland. And it was a, it was a hugely important city. In fact, if we go to the next slide, we can see kind of where, where it is. There's Corinth. It sits there. And one of its harbors would have faced out towards Italy. The other would have faced in towards uh, Asia. And there was a short four-mile walk which kind of connected these two places. And um, what would have happened is it was hugely important because sailors would have come down aiming to get to Athens, and they'd have had a choice. Choice one would have been they could take their boats and they could sail around the peninsula where the, the, the waves and the storms were often quite fierce and risk having their boats kind of blown onto the, the rocks and the, the small islands there. Or they could dock in at Corinth. They could unload their cargo. They could pay some servants to carry their cargo across this short four-mile track and even carry their boats across this short mile track and get, get on the other side and carry on towards Athens and obviously all those other cities which were on the inside there. And we can kind of get a sense of how important this, this kind of gateway was 
to the Greek world because in uh, a few short years after Paul was there, AD 67, uh, Emperor Nero tried to dig a canal across the Peloponnese. And though he got some 6,000 Jewish prisoners of war, and they started to dig this canal, which was 40 to 50 miles wide. And if we, if we show the next photo, you can just kind of see the scale of what uh, Nero was asking these 6,000 Jewish prisoners of war to do. In fact, the the canal was actually only finished in about 1800s. It was finally, finally constructed. But you get a sense of what he was asking them to do, which was just astronomical in size. And obviously now the ships don't have to, to sail all the way around. They can take the shortcut through. Um, and so it was, a, it was an important city in a, an important strategic position. It also had great natural resources. It had lots of good, a good supply of water. It had lots of clay. And it was, it was a hub of commerce with so many people coming through. But it was also a troubled city for many reasons. One of the reasons was uh, Corinth was part of the Archean League, which was a kind of a group of Greek city-states who'd clubbed together. They wanted to have a kind of a collective voice but they also want to have some kind of individual autonomy. And um, as a result, this group declared war on the city-state of Sparta. Um, and they were Roman allies. And in 146 BC, some 200 years before Paul arrives in our passage, Corinth is completely laid waste. The Romans uh, march in, and uh, General Lucius Mimius, or Mummius comes in, and he, he just destroys the city. And Julius Caesar comes in about 100 years later and rebuilds the city. And do you know, the success of the city is somewhat guaranteed by just the fact it's in such a great position. It also is a, a city that had some kind of uh, reputation for cult-like religious practices. If we could show the next slide. Um, there we go, a couple of temples. Um, in the background there is this monolithic rock called the Acro. Corinth. It's about 574 meters tall, which if you, if you were to put the Eiffel Tower in there, it's kind of two Eiffel Towers tall. And on top of this tower was a temple to the goddess of love and war, Aphrodite. And the, the people of Corinth and pilgrims traveling into Corinth and, and travelers would, would climb up this rock and they would pay their money into the temple and they would enjoy the sexual pleasures of the male and female prostitutes up the top of this rock. Maybe that wasn't their thing, but there was a couple of temples down on the ground as well. There was a temple all to do with healing. They'd go in there and they'd, they'd do some bathing rituals. And it was, it was a very ritualistic kind of city. It was a busy city. It was a, it was a cosmopolitan city. It was, it was multi-demographic. It would have had freemen. It would have had uh, war veterans. It would have had tradesmen. It would have had uh, kind of laborers laboring in the city. It was a city which was self-sufficient. They would have called themselves self-made, and it had self-made attitudes. You would describe it as a post-modern city, where anything went and everything was acceptable. That's what the Corinthians believed. And Paul arrived in Corinth after being in Oxford, essentially, the, the high center of learning, and he arrives in Brighton. <laughs> and it's, I, know, I remember the first time... I went to Brighton as an 18-year-old kid. I was well out of my comfort zone, having been brought up in Paul and Bournemouth. Everything went, no offense to anyone who's from Brighton here or loves Brighton. It's a great place, obviously. But the culture of Corinth was very much like our culture. It was a culture which was self-sufficient, which loves self-congratulatory practice. I did it my way. It was a, it was a culture which 
kind of ranked themselves against each other's peer. How do I look compared to the next person? How do I look compared to this group of people? It was a culture which devalued traditions and norms, like marriage. They had no place for those kind of traditions and norms. And Paul arrives, and he's devoted to mission. He's devoted to preaching the gospel, and he's devoted to planting and strengthening churches and seeing the lost brought into life. Paul and Bournemouth is not too dissimilar to Corinth. Okay, we don't have the great views or the the fantastic temperatures, but we have a people who are lost and who are in need of saving. And Paul comes to, to bear witness to Jesus, the Messiah, the only one through which life is found. And are you ready to do what Paul did in Corinth here in Paul and Bournemouth today. And I want us to see three things as we read this passage. One, I want us to see that mission is all about people. Mission is all about people. Two, that mission will be risky. And three, that mission is compassionate. So if you've got your Bibles, we're going to read from verse 1 again all the way down to verse 17. We'll take the chunk in one go today, and then we'll kind of unpick under those three headings. After this, Paul left Athens and went a short 50 miles down to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. But when they opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent of it. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. Crispus, the synagogue leader, and his entire household believed in the Lord, and that many of the Corinthians who heard Paul believed and were baptized. Great news. One night, the Lord spoke to Paul in the vision, do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one is going to attack and harm you, because I have many many people in this city. So Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half, teaching the word of the Lord. When Gallio was pro-council of Achaia, the Jew of Corinth made a united attack on Paul and brought him to a place of judgment. This man, they charge, is persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary to, our, to the law. Just as Paul was about to speak, Gallio said to them, If you Jews were making a complaint about some misdemeanor or serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to listen to you. But since it involves questions about words and names and your own law, settle this matter yourself. I will not be judge of such things. So he drove them off. Then the crowd turned on Sosthenes, the synagogue leader, and beat him in front of the proconsul. And Galileo showed no concern whatsoever. Mission is about people. Two things. Mission is about the people we do... uh, 
do mission with, but it's also about the people we do mission for. We're going to take those two things separately. So Paul arrives in Corinth, a place which is outside of his comfort zone for sure, and he meets there Aquila and Priscilla. Now, what do we know about them? Well, we know they're refugees. They've been kicked out of Rome. They've traveled down to Corinth. It was the kind of place where refugees went. It was a busy, bustling city where they could get work. There was lots going on. Um, And we don't know much about them, but we know that they were believers and they'd come from Rome. So potentially they were some of the founding members of the church in Rome before they left. And they, they meet up with Paul and they quickly become co-workers. Now this is not just in preaching, but also in physical labor. They are all tent makers and they go about their business together. You see, Paul and Priscilla and Aquila's trade, they would, it would have probably upset the Jewish people. It would have been a bit lowly for them. They wouldn't have really wanted the people preaching in the synagogue to be doing that. But Paul wasn't concerned with what the people thought, unlike the rest of Corinth. He was concerned with making a way to support his ministry. At that time, clearly, he didn't want to be a burden to those around him. And he, he, he went about his business making tents. And then on Saturdays, he'd go over to the, to the synagogue and he'd preach the gospel. So he had Priscilla and Aquila around him. A little bit later, we're not entirely sure how long later, Silas and Timothy, Paul's buddies, rock up from Macedonia. And Paul, at this point, is released for full-time ministry. Tent tent making's done. He's he's provided enough for himself, and he starts to preach full-time. And what's encouraging for us here is that Paul's ministry is not just success story after success story after success story. And we're going to see that here in Paul and Bournemouth. That some things we do will be successful, and some things we'll do will just make us feel like, why did we bother? And the people opposed Paul. They drove him out. They, they completely rejected him. But he's obviously making some headway because he, he calls on some of his mates. He goes next door to the house of Titius, a worship of God. And then miraculously... Crispus, the guy who's leading the Jewish people, the synagogue leader, he gives his life over to Jesus and the whole of his household believe and are baptized. And what we see here is that the the people we do mission with is important. The people we do mission with are important. Paul was surrounded by brothers and sisters who loved Jesus, who loved each other and who loved the church. He didn't seek to do mission on his own. He always sought to do it with people around him. He was part of a team. And my question for you this morning is, are you part of the team? Are you part of this team? Are you committed to local church like Paul was committed to church? Are you committed to strengthening and planting churches like Paul was committed to strengthening and planting churches? And that's one of the reasons why here at Gateway we believe that membership is so important. When someone comes into membership here and says, yes, it's like they're saying, I'm on your team. And the mission that you do as a church, I'm all in for you. And so if you're not a member here, but you believe and you've been baptized and you you think about becoming a member, it's a way of saying yes to the mission of God, the mission of Christ here in Paul and Bournemouth. Not only is mission about the people we do it with, but it's also about the people we do it for. 
when Paul's team is eventually bolstered by Silas and Timothy, the kind of the, the pace of the mission steps up. Whereas he'd been in the synagogues just on the Saturdays, I guess he'd been witnessing in his work as well. He starts to preach full time. He goes about his business full time, and he's, he's measure, his, his efforts are met with both success and failure. What does it say? It says that most of the Jews in Corinth resisted the gospel. Most of the Jews. It can it can be easy for us to become despondent and apathetic about mission because we are met with resistance and persecution. We've all been there. We've all been there in that moment where the church leader stood up front and said, I really want you to go out this week and I want you to find an opportunity to invite someone. Maybe it's to the carol service or to the Christmas fair. And you, and you go and you, you give out your flyer and you, maybe you share the gospel with them and they just shut you down. They said, don't want to know. Is that in a church? Oh, I don't want to go there. We've all been there. We've all, we've all kind of felt that kind of pain and that kind of burden. And it would be too easy if we came across those situations just to, to say nothing at all. And, and maybe the next time that opportunity arises, you just think twice about saying anything. And you just choose to say nothing. But we must not lose sight of the fact that we do mission for a people who are lost. A people who are completely rudderless in, a, in walking in darkness and do not know the light. And we have the light here. We have Jesus Christ, the only one who can bring them from death into life. Brother Andrew, who was a, a missionary who was smuggling Bibles into locked-down communist states during the, the height of the Cold War, he said this. He said, persecution is an enemy the church has met and mastered many times. Indifference could prove to be far more dangerous a foe. Paul came into a city not too dissimilar to the city that we are in today. He spoke up because he knew that the gospel was the only thing, the only power, the only message that could take people from life in death into life. And we have the very same responsibility to speak up just like Paul did. And we must disconnect ourselves from taking responsibility to how people respond. Sometimes if someone shuts you down, you just kind of beat yourself up. That's, that's not our responsibility. That's not the bit that we should be held responsible for. And so when we speak and we are shut down, hey, that's okay. That's their choice. But when we speak and we do speak up, we can give glory to God because someone's come in and they're starting to, to trust in who Jesus is. So we do mission for the people, both the people we do it with and the people we do it for. Secondly, mission is risky. I wonder if we can show the photo of uh, the next man over here. This, uh, this story surfaced earlier last month, mid-November. This is John Allen Chow, and he was a, an American missionary who traveled to an island uh, off the Indian coast to a, to a really locked-down people group, to a, a people group who perhaps had never even heard the gospel, who aren't connected in any way to the mainland, to a people group called the Centralese. And according to the New York Times, Chow um, around 
arranged for a local uh, fisherman, I think he was 26, to take him close to the island where he hoped to give out gifts of scissors, safety pins, fishing lines, a soccer ball. And after landing on the island, he was confronted by the guards of the island. He said, my name is John, I love you, and Jesus loves you. And when he tried to hand over these gifts, one of the, the, the young lads, one of the boys, shot an arrow through the Bible that he was holding. So it's hostile ground, and he ran away, and he escaped without injury, and he he debated whether to return to that island. Well, he arranged to to be returned, and on November the 16th, he told the fisherman who dropped him off he'd be okay staying the night. He's going to stay the night on the island. When those fishermen passed by the island the next day, they, they saw the islanders dragging Chow's dead body across the sand by a rope. Mission is risky. Mission is dangerous. And Paul's experience of mission is much the same. It's one of success, but also set, setbacks. He gets knocked down, but he keeps getting up again. And it's, it's clear that Paul felt particularly intimidated by the city of Corinth, because it wasn't like Athens. It wasn't like a place that he was comfortable with. It was a hostile city for gospel advance. That's why when Paul wrote, writes his letters back to the Corinthian church, he starts them like this, I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. He was afraid. Paul was afraid of the Corinthian city, and and we too should have that kind of understanding that we are preaching the gospel in hostile territory. And then Paul sees this vision, which must have brought Paul a lot of kind of comfort and warmth. It says, one night the Lord spoke to Paul in the vision, do not be afraid, keep on speaking, do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one is going to attack you and harm you because I have many people in this city. It's kind of hard for us to imagine Paul ever being silent. We see, we see his whole journey, don't we? 30 years of incredible gospel advance, which Paul is like the main man. He's the, he's the guy doing it. And yet we know that Paul was afraid and Paul was tempted to speak because why on earth would God want to encourage him not to stay silent? He was tempted to stay quiet. And that's encouraging for us because how often are we just tempted to say nothing at all? Maybe we we see a situation which we know is injustice. We just keep quiet. Or someone just opens up that question to you. What did you do at the weekend? And you just, you debate whether you should say, I went to church and I, I heard this guy speaking about mission. So easy for us to say silent, but we should, we should take some encouragement from the fact that Paul had to be spoken to directly by God. But we must also understand that this is Paul's vision, not ours. This is a description of what happened, not a prescription. We're not going to go to bed tonight and we're going to lay down our heads and God's going to speak to us and say, Matt, Nathaniel, Hannah, here's being... He's not going to do that. It's a description of what happened for Paul. But there's some things in here that we can learn. But the very God who has set all the stars in place and has knows their name chose to step down into humanity and give himself as a man and serve amongst us is with us. He is with us. We should believe that we are in a city where there is a harvest that is plentiful, and we all know that. We all know that as we go to our neighbors, there are people who don't know Jesus, who people who are who are ripe for the picking, who, who want to, to step in. So let's not be afraid to 
to stay silent, but instead choose to speak up. Chow is, uh, he's not the first or last missionary who will face martyrdom, who will lose their life for the gospel. But it's too easy for us to be removed from what is the reality of what he was trying to achieve. He, he went there trying to bring the gospel to a people who needed Jesus. Jim Elliot, another famous missionary, said this, We are so utterly ordinary, so commonplace, while we profess to know a power that the 20th century does not reckon with, but we are harmless and therefore unharmed. We are spiritual pacifists, non-militants, conscientious objectors in this battle to the death with the principalities and powers in high places. Meekness must be had for contact with men, but brass, outspoken boldness is required to take part in the comradeship of the cross. We are sideliners, coaching and criticizing the real wrestlers while content to sit by and leave the enemies of God unchallenged. The world cannot hate us. We are too much like its own. Oh, that God would make us dangerous. Oh, that God would make us dangerous. What, what Corinth needed was the cross. It needed the power of God to break out because it is the only power which would change the hearts of those who were living by and were consumed by their own self-indulgence. It didn't take the Roman city to rebuild that city. It takes Jesus to rebuild the city. And that's what we need to be crying out for here in Paul and Bournemouth. We are the, the beacon of lights. We are the ones who carry hope. We are the ones who can save the lost. And we mustn't escape the fact that mission is risky. It's going to potentially be isolating. It's going to potentially bring about persecution. Now, we don't, we're not living in a society where we might lose our life for it, but we have to recognize that there will be people who will and still will lose their life for the gospel. And we are joined together as brothers and sisters. We are partnered with them in the gospel. Finally, mission is compassionate. Paul's stay in Corinth was an unusually long stay for him. He didn't tend to stay a year and a half, and he, he certainly provoked significant opposition. At the, and in the end, end of verse 17, we get this incredible scene where the, the leader of the synagogue, Sosthenes, is beaten up. And the series of events which kind of led there shows us something of God's sovereignty at work in the church in calling a people to himself. So we get this vision in verse 10 where Paul sees a, gets his, God speaks and says, don't be afraid, no one is going to harm you. And then in verse 12, the people start to conspire to harm Paul. So something along the journey is, is happening here. They arrest Paul, they, they drag him to this kind of uh, Roman leader, and they say, this guy is speaking against our law. He's speaking words which blaspheme what we believe. And I love the way that he responds. He, he comes up to me and says, hey, have you, got a, have you got a real charge? Hey, if this guy's been committing a crime, if this guy's been robbing the bank, if this guy's done something, if he's hurt someone, if he's murdered someone, hey, I want to hear it. But if this guy is, is just speaking words which upset you, 
I'm not going to deal with it. And this situation kind of bubbles over, and the synagogue leader ends up getting the beating here, not Paul. And we kind of have to say, what was going on there? I think there's a couple of things which could have happened. One, um, the Jewish people could have been upset that their leader had failed to get a conviction and a prosecution, and they took it out on the guy who was leading them. That's one option. Option two is that the Roman people were there. It had been a, a big event. It had been a big crowd. They loved to have followed those kind of things. The Roman people saw this as an opportunity to get one up over on the Jews. Needless to say, it's the, the guy who's in charge. He's brought this charge against Paul who gets the beating. But we only really get the full picture when we read Paul's letter again back to Corinthian church. The very opening of 1 Corinthians 1 says this, Paul called to be an apostle of Christ by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes. Now, we're not certain that this is the same guy. But this name, Sosthenes, is only mentioned twice in the New Testament. Once in Corinth when Paul meets him as a synagogue leader, and once when he writes back to them a few years later. Assuming this is the same man, something incredible has happened. Something miraculous has happened. After Crispus, the previous synagogue leader, gave his life to Jesus, Sosthenes takes charge. He he starts to, to build his plot against Paul. And now we know that Paul calls him a brother in Christ. And you can imagine the situation. He's beaten up, he's laid on the ground, and Paul is no stranger to, to being beaten up or stoned or laid on the ground. He goes up to him, he probably picks him up off the ground, and he shows him compassion. Mission is compassionate. Matthew 6 says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. It would have been really easy for Paul to go, got what he deserved. He was plotting against me. Leave him there. Don't no one help him. But Paul chose to show compassion. Do you know, mission isn't about our agenda. It isn't about taking side. It's not us against the world. It's about saying, Jesus, I love you. I recognize that I found all life in you, and I'm prepared to, to, to show the compassion that you showed me to those around me. This morning is the, the first Sunday of Advent, and in, in a few weeks' time, children and adults across the world will, will celebrate Christmas as if it's some massive festival. And it's, it's, it, we, we know that the reality of Christmas is detached from what we actually celebrate here at Gateway Church. But Jesus Christ came down into this world. That's what Christmas is about. It's about the birth of a Messiah. And he lived amongst his people, and he taught amongst his people, and he chose willingly to go to the cross for his people so that we, as enemies of God, as slave to sins, as people who should have been shown no mercy, could have all the compassion of Jesus Christ poured out for us, demonstrated on the cross. And if if you are a a non-believer here, if you've never chosen to put your trust in Jesus, that is the message of the gospel. But a man named Jesus stepped down into his world and he gave himself up willingly so that we can be free from our punishment death and live in life instead of sin. And for us as believers, we can show compassion on the mission field because Jesus showed compassion for us first. And we must use that as our model to follow. So, 
Mission is about the people. It's about, it's going to be risky, and it's about compassion. And I'm going to fire out seven quick things as we come into end here. Seven quick applications, and maybe one or two of these. I don't expect all seven of these are going to hit the mark for you, but maybe one or two of these will just kind of cut deep and say, God, I just need to realign myself with the mission you've got for me here in Paul and Bournemouth. So here we go. One, Paul didn't escape to the country. He didn't, he didn't escape to the country. I love that TV show, Escape to the Country, as if you're going to get away from everything. I don't love it, but I remember watching it as a kid when I was off school, from ill or something like that. He didn't escape to the country. He didn't, he didn't retreat to Christian suburbia. He didn't avoid hostility. And that, that comes with gospel-centered living. But you know what? It's too easy for us to settle down, to come to church on a Sunday morning, just accept that that's what Christianity is about. That's not what Christianity is about. This is, this is the, the, the time when we guard ourselves up in the barracks of the church and we go out and we bring the gospel to those around us. But maybe you have resigned yourself to living in Christian suburbia, where it's just a quiet life. Paul was, number two, Paul was not afraid to defy convention. convention. He, was a, he was a tent maker where tent makers were the lowest of the low. He was willing to be segregated and persecuted. Um, but maybe you've just become a little bit like the culture. Maybe it's impossible to tell where you finish and the world starts. Because actually, if we're going to be Christ-like followers, we have to stand out from the crowds. Thirdly, Paul was not afraid of direct talk. When the, when the people came up against him, I love how he responds. He says, your blood be on your heads. He wasn't afraid to be confrontational. And in, in a world where freedom of speech has been heralded as the pinnacle of our human rights, do you know what? We're very free, but we choose not to speak. We choose not to proclaim Jesus. We choose to be silent so often about our faith. The faith that has brought us from life into death, from death into life. Fourthly, Paul had a belief in God even when the evidence was mixed. Do you know, it was a mixed bag. Paul's time in Corinth, Paul's missions, they were a mixed bag, and it's going to be like that for us. Just a few weeks ago, we were, we were celebrating salvation, and we love to celebrate people giving their lives over to Jesus for the first time. But you know what? It won't be too long before we're going, oh, we're being knocked down again. Because that's what mission is like. That's what being in relationship with Jesus is like. Maybe maybe it's a a colleague who publicly humiliates you because you've decided to speak out about Jesus. We get knocked down. But that's okay. That's the evidence we see in the Bible. God wants us to get back up. He is with us. Fifthly, Paul knew the team was important. Whether it was Priscilla, Aquila, Crispus, Titius. There's loads of people who he did it around. We, we don't want to do it on our own. This is not a let's go out and be missionaries on our own to Paul and Bournemouth. That's not the way it's going to work. That's not the way we're going to take any ground. He's calling us to be part of team. And maybe you've just lost sight of that. Maybe you've just going through the motions. God wants to call you into team here at Gateway Church to go and do mission to Paul and Bournemouth, to Ashley Road and to, to Lower Parkstone and to Upper Parkstone and along the Ringwood Road and down into Oakdale and down across to Branksham. We have a, a mission field here of people who don't know Jesus and he's, he's calling us into team together. 
Sixthly, Paul saw that enemies can become friends. Sosthenes was a, a miracle conversion. The very guy who opposed Paul was converted and loved Jesus and was now called a brother. Paul, who was a, a church hater, he hated the church, was converted, and he now loves Jesus. We shouldn't lose sight of the fact that if someone rejects our message once, they might not reject it a second or a third time. We just have to go again. We just have to go again because clearly Sosthenes, being the synagogue leader, would have heard Paul preaching over and over and over again. And only when the moment came did he choose to put his trust in Jesus. So let's not lose sight of our family members who we've preached the gospel to over and over again. And no matter what we can do, we just can't seem to break through. Let's pray for them. Let's pray for our friends who we've invited to every single, thing, single event we've managed to do, and they've come along to these things, and yet they don't seem to make any progress. Let's trust that Jesus can make enemies friends. And finally, Paul had an expectation for growth. He, he just did what God laid on his heart, preached the gospel, but he had an expectation that there were people for him here in the city, that Jesus was going to build his church. And don't we want to see what happened in Acts over and over again here in Paul and Bournemouth? Don't we want, to, don't we want that to be our story? 30 years of incredible growth. And um, that message has been going around my heart since like PJ bought it five or six years ago. 30 years. And back then I was like, man, I got two more lots of 30 potentially in me. Got two more. Let's go twice more. We can do this again and again. And maybe for you, let's be, your heart's just not expectant for growth because we've not seen it. But the message is clear. We just need to do what God's laid in our heart, to preach the gospel, to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. And we hand the rest over to God. It's not our responsibility how the people respond. It's our responsibility to be passionate about mission. Why don't we, why don't we stand and pray just through some of these things and the band come and get ready to, to lead us in worship. Father, I... I thank you for this description of what you did here in Corinth and how you miraculously saved people even when the culture and the, the situation was, was up and against Paul and Aquila and Priscilla, but they were faithful servants of you. And Father, we want that to be our story first, that we'll just be faithful servants of you, loving you, loving your word and your, your gospel, that we would be committed to to knowing you first. Lord, would we just bring our hearts to you, say, God, we just repent of when we've turned away from you and we, we choose to love you first right now. And Father, we pray for our city, for Paul and for Bournemouth, oh, so many souls who, who don't know you, 150, 200,000 people across our conurbation, stretching from Hamworthy across to to Christchurch, Lord, we, we lift our hands to them and we say, God, would you break in? Lord, would we be servants of you? Lord, would we be passionate about the gospel? Lord, would we be bold like Paul was bold? Lord, when we are afraid and silent, would you just give us courage? Lord, would we know that you are near us? And so, Father, come and be with us as we worship. Come and be with us as we respond. Lord, would you rest on our hearts and would we know that you are good, that you are for us and that your 
gospel is the good news that can bring people from death into life. So Father, we just love you now and just still our hearts as we come and worship you again. We praise you, Jesus, for all the good things you've done and we are expectant of all the good things you're yet to do in our city.